You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, this is our penultimate study, I think, in 1 Peter, if you're using the church Bible you should find it, I think, on page 1221, 1,221. I notice this phone has not been claimed from this morning. Uh, If you were phoning Paris or being phoned from Paris, maybe yours. Meanwhile, I'll borrow it to prop up my Bible on the lectern here, if that's all right with the honor. So, First Peter chapter 5, and uh, beginning to read at verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I've often thought, and uh, perhaps you have had this experience, that towards the end or at the end of a series of expositions of a particular book, you get to the stage where you think, we're really ready now to begin the letter and track it through. We've got some sense of the way in which the author is writing, what his message is, and uh, we feel now we can dig down into the book. And we're not going to do that, I don't think, but one way of doing that in our personal study that I think would be a very interesting way would be to read First Peter and to ask yourself the question, how does this section, how does this paragraph, how does this chapter connect to the life and ministry of Simon Peter? Because I think it's become obvious to us that much that Peter writes here, and in a sense the reason why it's, humanly speaking, easy to receive it from Simon Peter is because he is writing of realities with which he himself was very familiar. Uh, Peter, of all the apostles apart from Judas Iscariot, is the one whose life had failure written over it in the early years. His resistance to Jesus' word about the cross, his denial of the Lord Jesus on the evening of his crucifixion, his whole life marked in an almost psychotic spiritual way between rising to the highs of confession and boldness, plummeting the depths of weakness and failure. 
And these early Christians in Turkey, uh, probably like us, were able to receive Peter's teaching just at the human level, at a natural level, because they knew this was a disciple who had failed, and yet in God's grace he had been restored. The very things that he had confessed, that Jesus was the Christ, the ministry Jesus gave to him on this rock, I will build my church. He would be the one who would take the keys of the gospel out of his pocket and open the kingdom of God on the day of Pentecost and open the kingdom of God to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Jesus had restored him and urged him to shepherd the flock, to feed the lambs, and called him, you remember, on that walk they had together to give his life as a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. And it was all built into his ministry now, and uh, he, is, he is speaking the Word of God as someone who has experienced the power of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he's emphasizing to these Christians, as we've seen time and time again, essentially two things. First of all, the summons to sanctification, to live a life of obedience and holiness, and then to understand that that inevitably involves a summons to live a life in which we will experience suffering, persecution, and affliction. And his words have been very tender, very encouraging. From the beginning, he's lifted up our eyes to the God who has the power to keep us and to the gospel that will bring us to glory, full of shepherdly kindness. And now, almost at the end, suddenly, Simon Peter, the elder in the church, the shepherd of the flock, begins to sound more like a sergeant major on the parade ground, a drill sergeant. And he's barking out these commandments. He's, he's almost marching into the dormitory at the beginning of this passage and saying to us, get up, think clearly, be sober, be on the watch, wake up, and know that you have an enemy and that we are at war. And this too, in a sense, of course, comes from his engagement with Jesus in Matthew 16, doesn't it? When he had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus' response was, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. I'm going to build my church partly through your ministry, Peter, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. In other words, right from the beginning of the, the word about his ministry, he was conscious, lost sight of it often, but was called to be conscious that Christians and churches live their lives, bear their witness on enemy-occupied territory, territory that Jesus Christ has been reclaiming 
but territory, therefore, that the evil one seeks to perpetually attack. And what Peter is now doing in these last few verses, he's really been doing this throughout his letter, but it becomes very obvious in these verses, is to help us how to see things clearly. You know, there is a sense in which this very real world is a kind of optical illusion to most people. What do I mean by that? Most people think that the world is exactly as they see it. They're utterly convinced that their view of things is the right view of things precisely because it is their view of things, and there is no other view of things that's available to them. And Peter is saying to us, as as the apostles generally do, this world can be, is for the unbeliever, a complete optical illusion. To the unbeliever, it seems solid when it is actually flimsy. To the unbeliever, because he sees the world out of a center in himself. It seems as though the world revolves round the great ego, when in fact it revolves around God. And you know, when we become Christians, that that doesn't go away overnight. Thankfully, our eyes are opened, but we can still very easily live under an illusion or come back under an illusion in which we interpret reality through what we see and not through what we hear. And what is so fundamental to the teaching of Scripture, the reason Scripture is words that are heard, is to teach us that we need to learn to see reality not through our natural eyes, but through word crafted and shaped biblical lenses, because only then will we see clearly. A stunning illustration of that in our Scripture reading from First Kings this evening. What was happening to Solomon? Did you just glance at the way the next chapter begins? That the next stage to all these horses and chariots is foreign women. Now, that to us is really strange. I mean, why would you move from horses to foreign women? Well, you see, if you understood that one of the things the kings in Israel were forbidden to do was to amass horses and chariots, then it's a very short step from seeing the world through your own eyes rather than through the Word of God to continuing to see the world through your own eyes rather than through the Word of God. And uh, if Peter had been around in the day in which he's writing this letter, he would have been at Solomon's side, wouldn't he? He would have been there as the, as the drill sergeant saying to him, now wake up, take a sober view of reality, and see things through your ears as you listen to God's Word. You know, just to use colloquial language, this is the oldest trick in the book, bar none. 
absolutely bar none, the oldest spiritual trick in the book is to draw believers to seeing reality through their own eyes rather than through what they hear from the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3 is an elementary illustration. She looked at the tree and she saw that it was delightful to the eyes. It looked really terrific for food. It stimulated all the senses. And she didn't see it through what God had said about it in His spoken word. Don't eat that tree. There's nothing wrong with it as far as I can see. But that's the problem. You can't see as far as God can see. And so he's been speaking to these Christians who are who are facing what from the human point of view is a terrible exchange. You exchange living your own life for living for Christ, and how do you end up? You end up impoverished. You end up persecuted. Don't you see that? I've never forgotten reading a letter in the Evening Times in Glasgow when I was still a boy at school in which a mother was, for some strange reason, pleading with the population of Glasgow for somebody to convince her daughter, who was the first person in the family who had got a degree from a university and was now going to serve Christ overseas, can nobody talk sense into my daughter? She's wasting her life. Well, you see, Scripture teaches us to see things very differently. And Peter is aware that if, as Paul says, the evil one is able to appear as an angel of light, we need to begin to see everything that happens not purely at a horizontal level, but to understand, as some of us probably learned as children, there's a wicked spirit watching round you still, and he tries to tempt you to all harm and ill. Let me, let me just illustrate how easy it is to be short-sighted or to be horizontally sighted. Something happens to you. How often do you ask yourself the question, where is Satan's hand in this? There is a conflict in the church. What happens? Is that almost always the case that people turn and look at each other and rarely ask the question, is Satan's malign hand operating here? And it's this burden that Peter has that we are often short-sighted, that our, our sense of reality is often almost as horizontal as though we had never become Christians. And we become unconscious that we are, we've been brought into the world of heavenly reality that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, which he says at the end of Ephesians is the same world where we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. So, this is his concern here because, of course, when they're called to sanctification, when they're facing suffering, you, you can become so inward, so man-centered, so 
horizontal in your vision. And so his opening words as he comes to an end are, these be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There are three things here. The first is this. He lays out for us the danger that we face as Christian believers, that we live in a supernatural realm, but not all that is supernatural is good. People say today, I'm a very spiritual person, and they equate spiritual with good. The Bible never does that, never makes that mistake, never assumes that the the supernatural is by definition benevolent. And this is Peter's concern here, that we face a particular danger. And there's something very interesting here. You know, sometimes when we're talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we speak about the person and the work of Jesus. And sometimes we we do that simply by using the titles of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the Son of Man. He is the Kurios. He is the Lord. And we understand that these titles of Jesus, these names for Jesus, tell us so much about what He does as well as who He is. And the Bible does the same thing with the evil one. It has titles for Him, descriptors of Him that help us to understand the kind of activity in which he is engaged in order to trap and spoil the testimony of Christian believers. And you find this almost casually in what Peter writes here, that he is first of all an enemy. That is, he is an opponent. It's a word that comes from from the law court. He he is somebody who, who prosecutes you. He is determined to do you down. In one sense, you could say he is determined to get you back into prison. And how many Christians have been conscious of that? Set free by Jesus Christ, but now living their lives conscious that they they feel as though they are imprisoned again. They have fallen into sin patterns that they are not able to break. And And Peter is saying, you need to be conscious of that. And then he calls him the devil. Um, That's a very interesting word because its verbal root is from the Greek verb to throw something. It's almost as though Peter is saying, now one of the things we need to learn to see through our ears is how adept the devil is at ambushing us. And we, do, we don't notice his presence. We don't, we don't realize as we are being drawn into something that this, this isn't just that I've got a sinful heart. It's, it's that somebody is tugging on the strings of my sinful heart, drawing me on. And of course, as soon as you realize that, your, your disposition changes. You need to put on the armor of God, and you understand that. 
And he has this marvelous way of describing him. He says, you need to understand that the devil goes around, he says, like a roaring lion. He prowls around. Remember when uh, in Job chapter 2, it's a long time since, well, it's only a few years when David was in Job, isn't it? But Job chapter 2, do you remember Job appears in the heavenly assembly and God says to him, where have you come from? Do you remember his words? I've come from going to and fro throughout the earth. Well, does he suffer from insomnia? Of a kind he does. What's he doing going to and fro throughout the earth? Now, here's the answer. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour. Don't you think that that's exactly the picture that was in Jesus' background when He said to Simon Peter, Oh, Simon, and to the other disciples, Satan has desired to have you all to sift you like wheat. That's what He's doing. He's prowling around for opportunities that he can land on. Jesus also says, you remember in John's gospel, that, that, that he is coming, but he has nothing in me. And what he's saying is, he's coming. This is the, this is the hour of the prince of darkness, and he's coming, but he doesn't have a landing ground in me. You do not need to fear about me, Jesus says to them, because he doesn't have a landing ground in me. But my problem is he does have a landing ground in me. There's these strings he can pull, these old sympathies. And you see what Peter again is saying here is, you know, there are occasions when we struggle against sin and failure when we will never really find the deliverance that we need so long as we think this is just a matter of me and my own battles. And don't realize that while there is a battle within that needs to be fought, there is a consciousness of an enemy without that we need to have. And that was true for Job. Do you remember Job cries? Oh, God, he says, if it's not you that's doing this, who is it? And if you were there watching this in a theater as a drama, you would be on your feet because somebody had come in the front of the curtain and and told you what's in Job chapters 1 and 2, that it was Satan, and you'd be standing up, and Job didn't know it. You'd be standing up and saying, Job, it's the devil. It's the devil. Look out for the devil, Job. It's not just that your friends are no help to you, and it's certainly not God who's bringing you in this way into this suffering as though He were taking malign pleasure in destroying you. You have an enemy. Look out for him. And you see, if his friends had been able to say that, uh, I think maybe the book of Job would have been slightly shorter. But they didn't understand. They They didn't grasp that if Job had an enemy, then of course that enemy, as Calvin says so, so strikingly, 
the devil seeks to drive the saint to madness by despair. Now, that could be you, that could be me, not because of physical affliction, although that could be true as well, but because of the struggles that you have, the way in which you you keep failing. Simon Peter, he kept failing. Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, to swallow him up, to destroy him, really to swallow him up, be done with him, and then vomit him out. But you see, the knowledge that that is true is such a help to us. Because you see, what Satan does is he he keeps turning us back in on ourselves and our failure and the paralysis and the sense, I'll never get out of this, and the despair. And we need to learn to detect his murky hand. That's what Peter is saying. So he, he says to us, the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. He's your opponent. He's your accuser. He's your intimidator. And ultimately, he wants to be your destroyer. And Peter actually had gone through all of that, hadn't he? Absolutely all of that. And if you read the first chapter of, first nine chapters, I guess, of the Acts of the Apostles, just finishing before Saul of Tarsus sets out on the road to Damascus, What do you find from chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 9? You find exactly the same things in the life of the whole church. And they end with Saul of Tarsus, having implanted into him, surely by the evil one, an ambition to swallow the church and to destroy it. And Peter is saying that's, that's the arena in which we live. And as I say, that's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He begins by saying, listen, now that you're Christians, you've been, you've been brought into the fellowship of Jesus Christ in, in these heavenly realms. Your citizenship is in another world altogether. But you need to know that precisely there, so long as so long as you're rummaging around in the earthly realms in which you once lived, Satan doesn't have to bother with you too much. You're already his. It's when you've escaped into this new order of reality that you will discover that it's in that order of reality that the battle is going to be fought, which is why so often people who have been Christians for a relatively short period of time will often say to older Christians, Why is it that since I became a Christian, for all the wonder of it, life has become harder? And of course, that's exactly the place at which some huckster will come along and say, well, I can tell you how to live the Christian life that will just bring you into a totally new realm altogether in which there isn't all these struggles. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is Peter's point. There is a danger that we face. Then secondly, and this is so important for us to grasp, we not only have this powerful enemy, the danger we have to face, but he tells us what the defenses are against him. The dangers we face, the defenses we have. What's the first defense? First defense is to listen to the sergeant major. 
What's the sergeant major saying? Be self-controlled and alert. Or, as I think it probably would be better to translate it, be sober and keep awake. Be sober and keep awake. Now, be sober. I don't think the government is telling our 15-year-olds that that's the way to live. I mean, that is almost, you know, who would ever say that? No, better to say to people, I'm going to have a great time and get stoned out of my mind. What's Peter saying about, why does he say be sober? Because this is a very intoxicating world, isn't it? But the problem with intoxication is that we don't see things clearly. We don't think clearly. I had an amazing illustration of that years ago. I was going down to a Kirk Session meeting in St. George's Tron in Glasgow, walking down West Nile Street just before Christmas. I saw this drunk man stagger out into the middle of West Nile Street, and there was a corporation bus heading straight towards him. So I pulled off my vest that said S, which is, of course, my name, Sinclair. I flew out into the street. I dragged him back in. That wasn't so heroic. But I suppose I did save his life. Oh, he hugged me. Oh, he said, oh, oh. He said, oh, thank you. Thank you. What's your name? Thank you so much. He said, you're the greatest man in the world. I said, no, I'm just just a Christian minister going to a Kirk session. No, no, he says, you're the greatest man in the world. Well, this is it, isn't it? Intoxicated in such a way that he couldn't see the bus, and confused in such a way he thought, I was the greatest man in the world. And that's why he's saying, be sober. You know, it's one of the least popular things to say in, in any sense. Um, We're living in a world that has an appetite for amusement that is almost breathtaking, almost breathtaking. Being serious, being, to say somebody is serious is almost like an insult today, isn't it? To to say somebody is a sober person. This is amazing. We have so much information about how utterly tragic our world has become. So much that is out of control. We live in, a, in, a, in a, an intoxicated society, morally, spiritually, politically, nationally, internationally. But you see, this is what makes the Christians stand out and... Uh, the Christian understands that, of course, the arrows will come, you sober sides. You know, it's just water off a duck's back, isn't it? You know, if somebody says, come on out and we'll get plastered and we'll just have the time of our lives and we'll be out of our minds. Like water off a duck's back, isn't it? You know, that is an idiocy of the highest order. Well, the same is true spiritually. He's saying, be sober. He's saying, think clearly. 
see clearly and think clearly. Do you know when Christians really mess up their lives and become prey to Satan, at least in my experience, and I guess David's may be not dissimilar, the two most common things men have said to me are these. One, I don't know what I was thinking about. Or two, you know, I didn't see it coming. That's why these words are so important to us. That's why they are so saving to us. The decision to listen to Peter, the sergeant major at this point, can save our lives, preserve our lives, bless our lives in marvelous ways. And, and, and he's saying this in such a way as to say, make this decision now and let it last for the rest of your life. Um, I don't know if anyone has done a survey of this among Christians and Christian leaders in the United Kingdom. But last week I was doing an interview with Desiring God, a ministry in the United States that some of you know about. And the person who was doing the ministry told me this. He was asking me a question. So, what do you say to people in this situation? He said, we have recently surveyed about 8,000 younger men who uh, take material from the Desiring God ministry, presumably watch things on their website, get podcasts, read books, 8,000 young men between 18 and 29. Now, if you know anything about that ministry, you would assume this is, these guys are among the keenest of the keen. And he said, you know, we've been absolutely bowled over by the fact that as we've asked them various questions, almost half of them have said that they are struggling with internet pornography. If you ask a Christian counselor in the United States what is the biggest problem that you are facing among Christians these days, that's going to be pretty near the top. Well, the first thing you say is what Peter says here, isn't it? The problem has been that you've been intoxicated. The problem has been you've seen through your eyes and not listened through your ears. And Peter goes on to say, not only do you need to wake up and be, and be sober, he says you, you need to develop, you need to get into some resistance training. Now, I've never been one for resistance training. I don't like resistance of any kind. <laughs> I don't do puzzles any longer because they resist the, my now fragmenting brain. Uh, but if, you, you know, if you're going to get anywhere in sport, you're going to do resistance training, aren't you? And God gives us plenty of resistance training. But you see, if you don't resist in the resistance training, it's not going to strengthen you. And that's what Peter is moving on to now. He says, he says resist him. Resist him. Wake up, sober out, and resist him. Be bold enough in faith to resist him. And it's very interesting here. I, I, you know, I don't think I could be dogmatic about this, but you know how when we read things or hear things in English, when, when there is a phrase that is repeated or a word that's repeated or even a sound that's repeated, 
If you know anything about how literature is supposed to work, you recognize this, how poetry works, then your, your attention is caught to the fact that there's a whole, there's a whole series of exhortations here. And the, the root verb that Peter uses here, it, he, he is used in a different way earlier on in the passage. I mean, earlier on in his letter. He's, he's told us, first of all, that we're, we're to submit to the governing authorities. We're to, we're to arrange ourselves underneath their authority. And he's told slaves that they're to do that in relationship to their masters. He's told wives that they're to do that in relationship to their husbands. And now he turns that verb around. And he says, you know, you can easily slip into doing the same thing with Satan, but you don't stand under him. You stand against him. And what is so interesting to me, because it's so parallel to what Paul does in Ephesians, you remember what immediately precedes his discussion of spiritual armor and warfare? Now, what goes on in your mind is a fascinating thing, isn't it? I mean, why do you say the next thing? You know, if you think clearly, it's usually because it's related to the last thing you said. I mean, people who, you know, who are just all over the place are kind of difficult to follow. So, coherent speech means one statement leads to another statement. Well, what led to Paul warning the Ephesian Christians about the spiritual warfare? Well, he'd just been, you know what he'd been talking about? He'd been talking about the life that slaves have in houses, the life that husbands have with wives and wives with husbands, the life that children have with their parents and parents with children. Why? Because those are the areas in which Satan characteristically trips us up. And isn't it interesting that there's this, this parallel where he's saying now, by God's grace, order your life under His hand in the way that He is commanding you. And he's saying that, well, because those are the areas that Satan attacks in, your working day, your home and family, your marriage relationship, your relationship to society, those are the areas in which Satan attacks us. Ordering your life according to God's Word in those areas are going to give you strength to stand against the evil one. And then he says, you need to know the truth. Do this firm in the faith. Remember what Paul says to the Ephesians? He says, you know, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers give you the Word of God so that you'll not be blown about by every wind of doctrine and pray to the devil's wiles. The more you know the Word of God, the more protection you have against the wiles of the evil one. And then he says there's something else. You need to realize you're not the only one. Because that's one of the things the devil will whisper, you know, you're the only one in the world here. There's no one else going through this. Resist him, he says, firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You know, one of the strange things about the Christian life, we hear, we were hearing this morning about Christians whose, whose lives are in great danger. What does it do to us? It gives us courage to face great danger. 
if we'd been told, actually, you, you people in St. Peter's, you're, you're the only ones who ever suffer for the sake of the gospel, we would have been closing in the doors, wouldn't we? But we're encouraged. You know this passage in Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's going through the valley of the shadow of death. I've often said to my congregations, you may be able to get to heaven without ever reading the Pilgrim's Progress, but why take the chance? When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he's going through the valley of the shadow where he's just been attacked by the evil one. He thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Then he was glad, and that for these reasons, says Bunyan, first because he gathered from thence that some who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. Secondly, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state. And why not with me, thought he, though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive it. Thirdly, for that he hoped, could he overtake them, to have company by and by. So he went on and called to him that was before. But he knew not what to answer, for that he also thought himself to be alone. And by and by the day broke, and then said Christian, he hath turned the shadow of death into the morning. Peter is saying the Lord gives you all the defense you need. So there's the danger in which we find ourselves. There's the defenses that God provides for us. And that leads unsurprisingly, forgive apt alliterations, artful aid to the doxology that we express. Look at it. The way he speaks in verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. You see, you see what he's saying? Interesting, he begins with a doxology, doesn't he? Blessed be the God and Father. And he ends with a doxology. And in that doxology, he tells us that God has sufficient grace for all of us. That God has called us to his glory. And he'll take us there even through suffering. That God will restore us. One last piece of Greek tonight. I apologize for it. Mark's gospel is probably Peter's gospel. Not in the sense that Peter wrote it, but that, that Mark served Peter as his amanuensis for writing the gospel. You just need to read Mark's gospel and change some of the pronouns to realize this is how Simon Peter spoke. You know, when Mark records how Jesus called Simon Peter. He uses the same verb that he uses here. Maybe both go back to Peter. Do you remember what he was doing? He was mending his nets. He was restoring them to their, their best condition. 
so that they could be used for fishing the next night. And remember what Jesus said? Peter, I'm going to mend your net so that you will be a fisher of men. And that's exactly the verb that Peter uses here when he says that the Lord will himself restore you. I mean, these Christians in Turkey, their mind must have been like bulging with their knowledge of how the Lord had mended Simon Peter's nets, how he had restored him. And so, in a way, after, after all these strong exhortations, which we desperately need to hear, He's giving us this wonderful word about gospel restoration, that if we've stumbled and fallen, the case is not hopeless, although Satan will tell us that. First of all, he told us it didn't really matter if we did it, and then as soon as we've done it, he tells us this is so serious, we have become lost souls. You can put your own name in these words, Simon, Simon. Satan has desired to have you, to sift you, like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen the brothers. And he could have he could have written in the margin, or some scribe receiving this letter could have written in the margin. Here, in Bunyan-esque language, here Simon Peter doeth exactly what he was told. And that can be true for you too. Broken, bruised, stumbled, sinned, feeling caught again in Satan's net. And you need to see that an enemy has done this. You need to hear the Word of God clarifying your thinking, touching your affections, releasing you from whatever has come to imprison you. And you need to feel that Jesus, who is a carpenter, is also a net mender. And he's taking your life with all the the ways in which it's frayed and broken. And by his word, he's he's using his word as as needle and, and cord to mend the net of your life so that you will be able to say with Peter to him, be the power, you see. He does actually have the power to do this. And he doesn't, he could have ended there, to him be the power, amen. But he says, no, to him be the power forever. And he could have ended there too, couldn't he? But no, he doesn't. What he actually says is, to him be the power forever and forever. And if we are believers, our only response is to join them in the last word and say amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the way in which you come to us, for the ways in which you've come to us this day, through the worship in which we have praised you, through the fellowship in which we have been engaged in mutual affection and love and encouragement, through the visit of our dear brother Adam, through your word to us from the prophet Isaiah, through 
the witness and the singing and the welcoming and the caring of the open doors this afternoon and through our return to be with you this evening. How blessed we are. Oh, we pray that by your word and through your spirit, as we, as we go from a, a taste of heaven together in your presence to what for some of us at times may seem to be a taste of hell in the world in which we live, that you will keep us awake, that you will help us to be sober, that you will make us conscious that we are under attack, but even more conscious that the resources we have for the fight are greater than those of the enemy. Christ has died to gain victory over him and give that victory to us so that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. So that day by day in this week, we'll be able to look up to you at the end as we place our heads on our pillows and say to you that the power belongs to you forever and forever. So help us, Lord, we pray and keep us for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.